Turn with me to 2 Samuel 23. We're looking at the last written words of King David of Israel. And as you make your way there, I'm going to pray for us, and then we will uh, read this together. Our Father, it's with gratitude that we uh, join together once again this morning. I trust that everyone here had a good night's rest and that we've enjoyed each other's fellowship so much here at this men's retreat, Lord. As we mentioned earlier, I'd like to pray, Lord, for those men who were not able to be here. I pray for those who just couldn't make it for whatever reason, but I pray especially those for those, Lord, who are who who didn't make it, and it was on purpose. And they, they just didn't feel this was a priority, didn't feel that this was important. I pray, Lord, that they would inculcate themselves into the body. They would they would become a part of, of what is going on at Grace Bible Church and not be separate, but join in the fellowship, join in the accountability, join in the brotherhood of godly men who want to love the Lord Jesus Christ with all their heart, soul, mind, and strength and serve Him in our families and in our church and our community. I pray for those men, Lord. Be with us this morning as we look into your word. I pray that you would teach us to think the thoughts that would be pleasing to you. We pray these things for Christ's sake and in his name. Amen. Let's just read this poem from King David again. The last words. Now these are the last words of David. The oracle of David, the son of Jesse. The oracle of the man who was raised on high. The anointed of the God of Jacob. The sweet psalmist of Israel. The Spirit of the Lord speaks by me. His word is on my tongue. The rock of Israel, the God of Israel has spoken. The rock of Israel has said to me, when one rules justly over men, ruling in the fear of God, he dawns on them like the morning light, like the sun shining forth on a cloudless morning, like rain that makes grass to sprout from the earth. For does not my house stand so with God? And has he made with me an everlasting, for he has made with me an everlasting covenant, ordered in all things and secure. For will he not cause to prosper all my help and my desire? But worthless men are all like thorns that are thrown away, for they cannot be taken with the hand. But the man who touches them arms himself with iron and the shaft of a spear, and they are utterly consumed with fire. Well, last night we did five thoughts that godly men think. Godly men think humble thoughts. They think God-glorifying thoughts. They think kingly thoughts. They think worshipful thoughts. And they think careful thoughts. And now in the middle of verse 3, where we left off last night, the Lord himself now speaks. Now, the, the structure, the literary structure of this poem, it gives us insight in the heart of David. It tells us where his heart is, what was important to him. Um, this is what's called a chiastic structure. It just means that the, the second half mirrors the first half. That, that there's a middle point, and at each point before and after, um, you see similarities. So I want you to picture kind of a, a five-level outline here. Just picture five levels. On the first level, David speaks about himself. In the third person, you know, when when somebody speaks about themselves, they say, if I said, Steve Swartz has decided to sleep in this morning, that's speaking about myself in the third person. Verse 1, David does this. Down to the fifth level of the outline, David speaks in the third person about evil men. And so you have that technique, speaking in the third person at the beginning, at the end. Now picture the second level of the outline. David speaks in the first person. He speaks about himself. 
The Spirit of the Lord speaks by me. The fourth level of the outline, the mirror image, David speaks in the first person again in verse 5. But in the middle, the center of the poem, in a literary sense, begins in the middle of verse 3 and goes through verse 4, and this is when God is speaking. And so in, in this type of structure, this type of poetic structure, the center of the poem is the key feature. That's the part we're to be drawn to. And so in essence, in David's last words, he really gives God the last word. And he makes it to where God is the final one to speak into his life. And so this brings us to this portion right at the center of the poem. Thoughts that godly men think. We did five. Number six, godly men think empathetic thoughts. They think empathetic thoughts. Verse 3 says, For the God of Israel has spoken, the rock of Israel has said to me, When one rules justly over men, ruling in the fear of God. Now I want to define some terms. We're going to define some terms and then put the pieces together into one point. First of all, when one rules justly, it means literally in Hebrew, when one rules as a righteous one. When one does what God would do, when one thinks how God would think and acts the way God would act, that's what ruling as God would rule speaks of, ruling justly. And then we want to define in the fear of God. It's the idea of remembering that somebody who's ruling is acting on God's behalf, and we're not to mess that up. Uh, One of my professors in seminary said, your biggest job as a pastor is just don't mess it up. Just don't mess up the church with your idiocy. Don't mess up the church because you're doing things that God would not have you to do. And so that's the idea of in the fear of God, that everything we do, everything we say is filtered through, this is a stewardship, this is a responsibility I have to act in God's stead. And then rules just means what it looks like. It means to reign, it means to have dominion, it means to have power over a situation, it means to influence a situation. And then the term I'm adding here, the term empathy, to be empathetic, the the root of this uh, in in Latin, actually it goes back to Greek also, it means to put yourself into the feelings of somebody else. In fact, the original word would have been pronounced empathy, but we say empathy because it's easier to say, to put yourself in somebody's pathos, into their feelings. To be aware of how they're feeling. Now, let's put all those terms together. Let's begin to draw this into a tight package. Ruling justly. This means doing the right thing. Now, you might say, well, I don't rule over anything. I mean, I can barely get up in the morning. How do I rule anything? Well, every single day, I would propose to you that every one of you has a ruling opportunity. The opportunity you have is the chance to get inside the heart of another person and to have an impact to make an influence, to respond rightly to that person. Why is it so important for a leader to rule justly? Why does that matter? Because anybody who's under your care is completely at your mercy. And and there should be a a deep, intimate awareness of this. If you've ever, uh, you remember when you were a kid, and you get a note from your teacher that says, go to the principal's office. I mean, your, your heart goes into your throat. You're like, what's going to happen? And you go down there, you forgot your medication. Your mom brought it up here. You're, oh, you know, you're just so relieved. Because some of the authority, you know they have complete power over your life. In the same way, 
You have authority every time you interact with somebody because you have options. That option gives you authority. So let's connect all the dots. When you interact with someone, you have a ruling justly opportunity, and it stems from a decision to think empathetic thoughts. To think empathetically. In other words, you have the chance to radically alter the outcome of an interaction just by your decision to rule the situation justly. You've all been in situations, and maybe you've been the perpetrator, where you are totally unaware of what a person you're interacting with is feeling or thinking, and you completely run over them or you get run over. I remember once in a church years ago, a sweet little lady asked Sylvia, how have you been feeling lately? Because Sylvia was having some health difficulties, and Sylvia said something to the effect of, I haven't been sleeping well, I have migraines, and I'm really having a lot of difficulties. And the woman said, oh, wonderful, praise the Lord. And like, you weren't hearing a word she said, were you? It, Let me give you three examples of ruling justly, because I want to really make this practical for you. First example, your wife is expressing herself to you in adamant emotional terms. She may even be crossing the line into sin. If you let yourself get focused on how uncomfortable you are or how offended you are, we have a name for what happens next. It's called a fight, because you got focused on how you're feeling. But if the Spirit of God prevails, if your self-control prevails by God's Spirit, and you look at her as the one who is distraught, and you're not thinking about the fact that maybe those arrows are aimed at you, you're thinking about the fact that she is in emotional pain, that she's in anguish. If you're thinking empathetic thoughts, if you're ruling justly, what you think is, how can I ease her pain? How can I minister to her? She's the one I love. I don't want her to feel this way. Even if it means humbling myself when I think I might not even be wrong. That's thinking empathetically. It means compassionate thinking. It means thinking with justice and mercy in a way that that gives her what she may not deserve if you think in your flesh. I'll give you another example. In the normal course of daily activity... You come across people continually that you know they're just trudging through life. These are, these are unbelievers who are just trying to make it. You can see the boredom or the distress on their faces. You can hear it in their voices. You have an opportunity to rule the situation justly by thinking about them instead of how depressed they're making you feel or how irritated they're making you feel. You always have this opportunity. Your resolve is to cheer them up. Your resolve is to be light in that moment, to to demonstrate Christ-like love to them. You ever been in a long line and you know somebody, you see somebody five people ahead of you at the checkout line, and somebody pulls out a bucket of pennies, and everybody in the line just goes, "Oh!" And the checkout person goes, oh, "Okay, everybody's going to be yelling at me." And every person, well, you shouldn't have counted all those pennies. And the next person, I've been waiting in line for ten minutes. And the next person, I've been here fifteen minutes, and you see this. Poor 19-year-old kid going, what am I doing here? You be the light. You be the one to say, take it easy. You're good. Thanks for being here. Thanks for putting up with all those people. I appreciate you. Be that person. You know what you'll find too? You will open witnessing opportunities all over the place by simply ruling a situation justly and by being different than every other person around you. You'll open opportunities because when that person sees you, they'll smile. They'll know. They'll open up. They'll be real. They'll know that you view them as a human being made in the image of God. 
and you can do this. Let me give you a third example. When someone is disagreeing with you or bringing you a position you don't agree with, thinking empathetic thoughts means genuinely listening until he or she knows that you know his position clearly and you've really heard them and knowing the reasons behind it. This is ruling justly. You know what we tend to do? We tend to answer a criticism with a criticism. Well, yes, I can see your point. What's the next word we say? But, right, you got it. You know what ruling justly says? Ruling justly says, I'm only going to listen. I'm not going to respond back with what that person needs to hear. That can, that can revolutionize your marriages, by the way. If your wife brings a, a criticism to you, don't, don't go through your mind, oh yeah, well here's five things I'm going to give back to her. You just listen. You know what you could do that would make you the greatest husband on earth? When your wife says, I have something to tell you, say, just a minute, run, get a pen and a notepad and say, I'm ready. I'm not going to say anything. I want you to express yourself until you've run out of things to say. She's going to go, all right, let me warm up. Me, 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 me. She's ready to go. I I have done this, and I I keep one particular notebook. I wrote five and a half pages, single space, longhand. And I keep it today because it's a reminder to me of all my failings. And that was one conversation. Ruling the situation justly means you listen, you know what another person needs, and you ask them. If you don't know, you say, what do you need right now? How can I help you? How can I meet that need? I worked with a man years ago. We worked with troubled children together, and these are significantly troubled kids, kids who have been sexually abused, physically beaten kids. And he was the most empathetic man with children I ever met. He was he was built like a teddy bear, gruff, actually used to work oil fields. He did that for 20 years and got in the child care business. And I, how did you ever do that? And he just loves kids. But I watched him. He could communicate respect. He could communicate love. He could communicate understanding. And you know what I noticed? Is that these so-called professional therapists who knew everything. We're, we've been to school and we know how to get to the heart of kids. They couldn't do anything compared to this high school educated guy. He could open up a kid and he would literally take a kid to a counselor. He'd say, I got him ready for you. He's ready to go because he could be empathetic. A godly man thinks empathetic thoughts. Seventh, godly man thinks influential thoughts. Influential thoughts. Second half of verse four, first half rather. The one who rules justly over men, ruling in the fear of God, he dawns on them like the morning light, like the sun shining forth on a cloudless morning. Now this has very rich metaphorical significance for us. Genesis 1, 16 and 18 tells us that the sun was created to rule the day. In fact, the metaphor of the sun ruling is so powerful in, in human experience that pagan cultures have long worshipped the sun. That's like a default position for so many cultures. Well, here, the sun is used in an agricultural picture. The sun benefiting the plants, giving them uh, nutrients to help them grow. There's all kinds of fertilizer products that can give plants extra nutrients. No one has yet discovered something you can put in the soil to substitute for sunlight. You can't do it. Sunlight is used for photosynthesis. The energy from the sun is used uh, for the chloroplasts in the plant cells to convert uh, carbon dioxide into carbohydrates, starch, cellulose, and so forth. In other words, sun is what makes something grow. 
You have to have sunlight for a plant to grow. Well, David's comparison of a righteous ruler here is one who ushers in new opportunities, new periods of growth, new periods of blessing for his people. He exerts influence because he believes that one man can change a nation, that one man can change an entire group, can make all the difference. And every one of us here as men instinctively believe that because we're made in the image of God. And that's what he has shown us uh, through Scripture. David believed this. One man can be like the sun shining forth. How many suns are there in our solar system? There's just one. It's all it takes. But it does such great work. This is your role of a man. And this is the idea of taking your manhood to a whole different level. Uh, very often, I'm, I'm disappointed at books about manhood because it's, it's so much about how to have my own effective life. How to have an effective life for me. And, and, and we'll spread that out to our family. But taking manhood to a whole different level is to look at others around you and to begin to have influential thoughts. Meaning, how can I impact this person? How can I make a difference that's really real? How can I elevate his life in a way that he'll never, ever be the same? That he'll change completely. Obviously, this is something we want to do for our children. We understand that. We want to discipline them. To influence them, we want to teach them wisdom to influence them. We want to them to know God's word to influence them. You are the defining influence in your family, and I hate to tell you this, but your family will likely not rise beyond the level of your own spirituality and your own influence. That's as far as they'll go, so you have to lead the way. Uh, just to give you an example of being an influence and why it's important, in looking at who might be called to full-time vocational ministry, to full-time pastoring, one absolute necessity that has to be there is that others have to recognize and encourage the giftedness of a young man. That has to be there. There have to be persons of influence who have come alongside a man and confirmed his giftedness and pushed him gently toward the ministry. That has to be there. Just out of curiosity, how many of you here could think of a man or a group of men who had an impact in your life that has an influence on who you are today? Exactly. Some of those guys did it by accident. I want to encourage you guys to do it on purpose. To look around at those you can bless and influence. This involves interacting with people and continually thinking, how can I make more of a difference? And this means in every conversation. Some some of us are prone, when we interact with others, to think about three people. We think about me, myself, and I. And I think about how this interaction is benefiting me and what I can say and what I can do and what, what I can really receive from this. And that's okay to a certain degree. We do have a give and take. But I want to encourage us to take that to a different level, to ask questions like this. This might be the difference between having a five-minute conversation with somebody and saying, you know what, what you're saying here is really intriguing to me and I might be able to speak to that issue in your life. Would you mind if we had breakfast together and talked about it? Would you mind if we got together? I want to show you some things I think might be helpful to you. And deciding to have an influence on them, deciding to be a disciple maker. It might be the difference between praying for... Uh, a, a family's financial well-being and stepping out and buying some small savings bonds for the kids, doing something tangible. Might be the difference between a quick pat on the back and giving real information in your area of expertise. When somebody says, you know, I'm, I just pray for me, I'm having trouble paying my bills. You can say, well, I'll pray for you. Or you could say, how about we sit down together see if I can help. 
and make a difference. Decide to make a difference. It might be the difference between saying, how are you doing? Quick shake, fake smile, or saying, how are you doing? I really want to know and I have all the time in the world. That's a big difference. That's being sunlight. That's being a ray, a blast of sunlight. In other words, it's saying, how can I go the extra mile, even the extra minute, to elevate this guy, to elevate this person beyond where he might have been? It, it makes the difference between saying, yeah, I'll be praying for you, and hey, let's pray now. Let's go to the Lord. Let's just talk to him about it. It makes a difference. Be that guy. You have to be intentional to do it. King David did this. He was, he was an influence in so many ways. He was a sunlight. But I want to give you one example. Uh, flip over to First Chronicles 22 with me. You're going to your right. First Chronicles 22. Uh, David wanted so badly to build the temple of God. It was his great desire. But God told him he couldn't. And so David told his son that he couldn't. 1 Chronicles 22, beginning in verse 8. David is speaking to Solomon. Starting, uh, let's put it in verse 7. David said to Solomon, My son, I had it in my heart to build a house to the name of the Lord my God. But the word of the Lord came to me, saying, You have shed much blood and have waged great wars. You shall not build a house to my name. Because you have shed so much blood before me on the earth. Behold, a son shall be born to you who shall be a man of rest. I will give him rest from all his surrounding enemies. For his name shall be Solomon, which just means peace. And I will give peace and quiet to Israel in his days. He shall build a house for my name. He shall be my son and I will be his father. And I will establish his royal throne in Israel forever. So here was David's wish for his son. This is his wish. Verse 11. Now, my son, the Lord be with you, so that you may succeed in building the house of the Lord your God, as he has spoken concerning you. But David didn't stop there. He didn't just give him a pat on the back. Hey, hope everything goes well. Be praying for you. Look back at verse 2. David commanded to gather together the resident aliens who were in the land of Israel, and he set stone cutters to prepare dressed stones for building the house of God. David also prepared great quantities of iron for nails for the doors of the gates and for clamps as well as bronze and quantities beyond weighing and cedar timbers without number for the Sidonians and Terrians brought great quantities of cedar to David. For David said, Solomon, my son, is young and inexperienced and the house that is to be built for the Lord must be exceedingly magnificent of fame and glory throughout all lands. I will therefore make preparation for it. So David provided materials in great quantity before his death. Not only did he give him the pat on the back, provide all the materials, then he circled back and he discipled Solomon. Look at verse 12. He gives him advice and wisdom and counsel. Only may the Lord grant you discretion and understanding that when he gives you charge over Israel, you may keep the law of the Lord your God. Then you will prosper if you are careful to observe the statutes and the rules that the Lord commanded Moses for Israel. Be strong and courageous. Fear not. Do not be dismayed. With great pains I have provided for the house of the Lord 100,000 talents of gold, a million talents of silver and bronze and iron beyond weighing. For there is so much of it, timber and stone too, I have provided. To these you must add 
You have an abundance of workmen, stonecutters, masons, carpenters, and all kinds of craftsmen without number, skilled in working gold, silver, bronze, and iron. Arise and work. The Lord be with you. David also commanded all the leaders of Israel to help Solomon his son, saying, Is not the Lord your God with you, and has he not given you peace on every side? So he goes on. What is he? Look at this. He gives him a pat on the back. He provides all the materials for him. He counsels him what to do with the materials. Then he goes to others and says, support my son. This is being a man of influence. This is elevating someone far beyond. We think, well, Solomon did such a great job building the temple. Not without David, he didn't. He did it with his father's help. David went to great pains to be a ray of sunshine. And it takes work. It takes effort. Go back to 2 Samuel We are to think influential thoughts. Very similarly, number eight, we're to think nourishing thoughts. Nourishing thoughts. A godly man thinks nourishing thoughts. He dawns on him like the morning light, like the sun shining forth on a cloudless morning, like rain that makes grass to sprout from the earth. Similar to the sunshine, the rain comes and it gives growth. But specifically, the metaphor here is makes grass to sprout from the earth. It takes more than just one blast of sunshine. It's, a, it's the idea of a continual watering. It takes commitment to continue watering over a long period of time to water seeds you can't see and keep the water coming, keep it coming, keep it coming. And then you see the seeds sprouting. This has more the idea of a long-range commitment to a relationship. What David did for Solomon was a one-shot ray of sunshine to really help him. This is long range here though when we speak of the rain. When Paul commanded husbands to love their wives to cleanse them by the washing of the word, this is a long range commitment. This is a long range project. He says in Ephesians 4, 5.29, For no one ever hated his own flesh but nourishes and cherishes it just as Christ does the church. We get so impatient with people And we want to beat sanctification into them and beat sin out of them instead of just nourishing their souls, not understanding that everyone grows at different rates and in different ways. I was invited to speak at a church once, and um, just like a day or two before I got there, uh, the, the guy who was bringing me there called up and he said, you know, I just want you to know here's a, there's a sin problem in our church and we want you to address it. We want you to come and confront the whole church. And I said, well, okay, uh, if that's what you really want, is just get me close to the back door so I can run. And so I prayed about it, and I thought, that's, that's not right. I don't have a relationship with them. That's not nourishing anybody. They don't know who I am. And so instead, um, we just talked in, in very broad terms, in gentle terms, about the long-range sanctification goal of being like Christ, not trying to beat it out of anybody at that moment. That's something you do with somebody you have a relationship with. It's not something you do with somebody who's a stranger to you. It it means long-range commitment. It means uh, understanding that you see a, a sin problem in a guy's life. You might say, I need to spend six months really letting him know I love him truly and know him well before I ever say a word about that. And you know what you might find, too? That your influence in his life makes it unnecessary for you to even say anything because changes begin to happen because you nourished instead of beat and got impatient. Don't be the guy who lives his life just getting by for himself. 
Look around at those you can nourish. And if you have kids, you'd better be nourishing them. It's your job. It's your job to do that. Um, I, I'm surprised, and I won't ask for a show of hands here, but I'm surprised at how many Christian fathers never disciple their own children, never teach them anything. What's that about? It's your primary responsibility. And so we nourish those closest to us. But beyond that, we pick other men to nourish. We just decide we're going to come alongside them. To think nourishing thoughts, it helps with the temptation to get impatient with others and it keeps us on the track of of cherishing them and nourishing them over time. Here are some nourishing thoughts, some questions to think about in your own mind. For your wife, what is your plan for positively impacting your wife's uh, love for Christ? The, The first step in that plan has to be living a life worth modeling, living a life worth uh, being impacted by. If you're living a life that is that doesn't give any respect to your wife for the way you live, then you have nothing to say to her. You, you speak with your actions first. Are you reading together? Are you praying with her? Are you providing materials for you? Are you making sure she's being fed the word? How do you nourish your children? What's your plan? Are, are you discipling them or just hanging out with them and, and playing with them and maybe trying to discipline them? Discipline and disciple is from the same root word, which means to teach, to come alongside. If you have grandkids, what's your plan? How are you nourishing them? Not just, not just giving them birthday presents and Christmas presents, but nourishing their souls and, and, and giving them materials and spending time with them in a way that is meaningful. How about this? How about looking beyond your own family and looking even in this room or in our church and pick a guy that you know is kind of on the outside, on the fringe, and decide, okay, that guy's my project for the next year. I'm not going to tell him he's my project. He's just my project. At the end of a year, he's going to say, you know, I just couldn't help noticing that I've been at your house every other week all year and couldn't help noticing that you've been giving me books and been calling me, you know, at 6 o'clock in the morning to ask me if I've spent time in prayer yet. I just wondered what that was about. I'm trying to nourish your soul. I'm trying to help you be more like Christ because it helps me as well. Who can you invest in? How about this? How about investing in someone else's kids? I have memories of, of friends of my parents who just decided to take me under their wing for whatever reason. They just made that decision. And those are people who have a profound impact on you because they're not obligated. You sort of think about your family. Well, they kind of have to do it. But the people that aren't obligated, they're the ones you remember. And certainly your own church body you can nourish here, one of the incredible features of the body of Christ, and think about this even here, is that you nourish others just by being here. If your presence wasn't necessary, if it wasn't vital, we just all listen to sermons on podcasts, right? But it is our physical proximity with one another that is encouraging. You can nourish the body of Christ even with financial gifts. And you think about that. You provide for many others to be nourished. You provide for uh, many to grow in Christ. Think nourishing thoughts. It means proactively encouraging others in their faith to walk beside them when necessary. It means going beyond the normal conversation when somebody's saying, I'm, I'm, I'm hurting, I'm having a difficulty in life. It goes beyond saying, well, how can I pray for you? It goes into, I want to come alongside you. I want to be here for you. How can I be here for you? And we do that for each other. My dad was a prayer warrior, uh, just just so wonderful in prayer. And he was a great encourager as well. And he put these two together. Um, he just he just decided to become best friends with my wife. 
And my wife would say nobody ever had a better father-in-law. And he just reached out to her. He treated her like a daughter. And when she was having health difficulties as she's had for years, on one occasion, he called her up and he said, Hey, I just wanted to let you know I'm committed to praying for you for 100 days straight. And he would call up and say, well, I'm on day, you know, 83, I'm on day 84. And just to encourage her, that was, that was a hundred days of incredible encouragement for Sylvia. It was simple, but it was above and beyond. He decided to nourish her soul. Godly man thinks nourishing thoughts. See people around you as opportunities for long range care and love. Don't, don't miss that opportunity. It's wonderful. Ninth, a godly man thinks big picture thoughts. Look at verse 5. Big picture thoughts. And what we're going to see here is a reference to the Davidic covenant. For does not my house so stand so with God? For he has made with me an everlasting covenant, ordered in all things and secure. For he will not cause to prosper. For will he not cause to prosper all my help and my desire? We see the Davidic covenant just a few chapters earlier in 2 Samuel 7. Beginning in verse 12, God said to David, When your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you, who shall come from your body, and I will establish his kingdom. He will build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. By the way, we're blessed by the Davidic covenant in two ways. First of all, we have the coming reign of the Davidic King, Jesus Christ, and certainly we're blessed uh, by the New Covenant because the New Covenant is the means by which the, new, the Davidic King will receive subjects into his kingdom. And so we're blessed immediately by the Davidic Covenant. But look at what the conclusion that David comes to. He says that this covenant is ordered in all things and secure. David has a firm belief in the sovereignty of God. He has a firm understanding in the big picture. And he says, For will he not cause to prosper all my help and desire? Now, help can be translated my salvation. That's probably actually a better translation. In the immediate context, he's speaking of his salvation from his enemies, victory over enemies in hostile circumstances. But David also had a definite eternal perspective. He had a big picture perspective. You know this verse, Psalm 23, 6. Surely goodness and mercy will follow me all the days of my life, and I will dwell in the house of the Lord, what, forever. He had a, a rare eternal picture that we see very few times in the Old Testament. He had an assurance that God would bring his salvation to fruition, and that all the righteous desires that he had would come to fruition in some way, shape, or form. In other words, he kept the whole picture of the future in his mind. He didn't just look at the moment. He didn't live right in this circumstance. He trusted the Lord to work all things together for his good. We might call this spiritual patience. Now I want to show you an example of spiritual patience and understanding. Uh, turn with me to 2 Samuel 12. Just go back a few chapters. You're familiar with this. When, when David sinned against Bathsheba by committing adultery with her, sinned against the Lord, and they had a child... God took the child in death as a consequence for David's sin. Now David lay on the ground before the Lord all night. He wouldn't eat. He cried out to God on behalf of the child. But on the seventh day, the little baby died. And look how David responds with the big picture understanding of God's sovereignty. Beginning in verse 20. Then David arose from the earth and washed and anointed himself and changed his clothes. And he went into the house of the Lord and worshipped. 
He then went to his own house, and when he, when he asked, they set food before him, and he ate. Then his servants said to him, What is this thing that you have done? You fasted and wept for the child while he was alive. But when the child died, you arose and ate food. He said, While the child was still alive, I fasted and wept. For I said, Who knows whether the Lord will be gracious to me that the child may live? But now he is dead. Why should I fast? Can I bring him back again? I shall go to him, but he will not return to me. David's eternal perspective was so solid that he emerged victorious almost immediately from that trial. Because he knew, what did he say at the end? I shall go to him. He had this eternal perspective of understanding, okay, God's got the big picture. While the baby was alive, yes, I prayed with all of my heart. When God gave a clear no answer, then I can live with that. Because God is sovereign. You have influence on those around you. This is important for you as men. It's your duty, it's your obligation to think big picture thoughts and to speak big picture words. Not be bound by the outcome of immediate circumstances. You have to be the one to influence others around you in this. You speak to your children about as much about heaven as you do about their college plans or about their careers. That's thinking eternal thoughts. Speak to the sick about eternity as much as you do about praying for them to get well. Speak to your own heart constantly about eternity and and not just to this moment. If you do this, if you begin to have a big picture thinking pattern and, and it comes out in your words to others, you're going to have an amazing impact on those around you. You're going to be one who gives strength and comfort and joy because what you bring to the table is a sense of timelessness, a sense of eternity, a sense of being able to wait patiently. Now, think about this. Where does all anxiety and worry really come from? Obviously, it's a sin, but where it comes from is the fact that we have limited time. It always comes from that. We need things to resolve now. The time in my life is ticking by. Now, put it this way. If you had an insurmountable debt to pay, some of you might have that situation right now, and you think, okay, I'm going to be 92 by the time I get this credit card paid off, and it's just depressing. Well, if you remember that 20 million years from now, you won't even remember that you had that debt, and that the time that it took you to pay it off, the time it took you trusting the Lord for this is such a drop in the bucket that you can't even remember what it felt like to be in that need. You wouldn't worry now. Here's what being a big picture thinker is. It's think as if you're already in eternity now. You are not going to receive eternal life. You've already received it. You just have one little detail to take care of and that's getting a new body. But you've already received eternal life. Think big picture thoughts. Uh, Just as an example... Uh, The elders at Grace Bible Church, we try to be very careful not to publicly use language that presumes upon God's goodness, presumes upon His immediate work. We try to use phrases like, the Lord seems to be blessing us right now. But it's His church. He can do with it as He wants. He can do whatever He wants. We try not to say things like, God is certainly going to bless Grace Bible Church in the future. I don't know that. All I know is that our job is to be faithful He may or he may not bless, partly dependent on our faithfulness, but all dependent on his sovereignty. 
What we do know is that Christ will build his church and we glory in that. You show me a church that does not have an eternal perspective, I'll show you a church that's like a commune looking out a little bunker window going, all right, we're in here together, we're the, we're huddled together, and we're waiting for the rapture. Come now, Lord Jesus, we're so joyful we can hardly stand ourselves. <laughs> eternal perspective gives great joy, and it's your job not just to think that way, but to speak those words. Speak those words to the sick. Speak those words to the elderly who are struggling. And hold their hand and say, isn't eternity going to be great? Aren't you looking forward to heaven? You know, I was reading in Revelation, there's streets of gold. Can you imagine that? Can you imagine that the tree of life is on two different sides of the river? How does that work? Can you imagine the new Jerusalem that's 1,500 miles wide, long, and high? I mean, that's a cube of a cube. And to speak eternal thoughts to them. They need that. Speak that to your children. You know what the worst thing you can do for your kids? Is to teach them that the way to be happy is to be successful now. That's the worst thing you can do for them. Teach them, work hard, do what the Lord would have you to do. But in the end, you worship God because you know there's an eternity with Him. Put that in your kids now. You know who love to hear about heaven? The elderly love to hear about heaven. Kids don't like to hear about heaven. You have to teach them. You have to teach them to, and they, well, I, I haven't gone to college yet. I haven't developed my career. I haven't bought a car. I don't have a Cadillac. I haven't been to Hawaii. Build in those around you a sense of the eternal and show them, demonstrate with your life that you're at peace. I'm good. You get a, a horrible diagnosis, you be the guy to say, praise God, I win either way. If I die, I'm great. If I live, I'm not quite so great. Frankly, I'm, I'm not sure which. Didn't Paul say that? He said, for whether to live or die, I don't know. To live is Christ. To die is what? Again, have an eternal perspective and be absolutely contagious with it. You have to be. Well, finally, a godly man thinks holy thoughts. He thinks holy thoughts. Verses 6 and 7. But worthless men are all like thorns that are thrown away, for they cannot be taken with the hand, but the man who touches them arms himself with iron and the shaft of a spear, and they are utterly consumed with fire. Utterly consumed with fire literally says they're burned where they lie. They're burned right where they are. These are thorns. These are people. They're too dangerous to pick up without putting distance between you and them. That you have to use a tool, the iron and shaft of a spear, to touch them. This is speaking specifically of David's responsibility as king to see that evil men are cast aside like thorns. That is the job of a, of a godly ruler, is to cast aside the evil. That's what government is for. He uses the metaphor of the, faint, the, the fate of weeds in a farmer's field. Both are killed with a tool or iron or the shaft of a spear and they're burned right where they lie. This is speaking of kings, a king's righteous zeal to get rid of evil, to purge evil from his realm and to do so uh, continually. David did this. He had no problem doing this. He had no problem uh, having evil men killed. Because he knew that they wouldn't ever change and that he had to purge his kingdom. But David wasn't just concerned with purging evil from Israel. He was also concerned with purging evil from his own heart. And he was aggressive about this. After his sin with Bathsheba, in his confession of Psalm 51, he says in verse 10, Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. 
Now, this isn't just speaking of judicial, forensic, legal cleanliness and innocence before God. It's not just speaking of a positional innocence. Lord, make me officially innocent before you. It's the idea of asking God to return his heart to thinking holy thoughts. You remember how David sinned with Bathsheba? He was walking on the roof of his palace and he saw her bathing naked. And at that moment, what should he have done? He should have said, Foreman, build an eight-foot wall here. I don't ever want to see that again. Go tell that woman I'm paying for a roof because I don't want to see that again. And I'm going to go and sacrifice about 18 cows right now and pray the Lord to help me. That's what he should have done. But what did he do? He cultivated that thought and it led to adultery. It led to murder. It led to great shame. It led to the death of a child. It led to so much pain. Now, This is the idea of asking God to restore holiness into your heart, into your mind. David prayed this in Psalm 51 verse 12. He said, Restore to me the joy of your salvation and uphold me with a willing spirit. He desires holy thoughts. You guys know good and well when what's going through your mind is completely disgustingly filthy. Whether it's lust or anger or bitterness, you know it. And you know it's there. And you look at it and you say, I'm just going to look at it for another minute. Kind of enjoying this. Kind of like it. But David gives us an example. Think holy thoughts. Some guys, they get into the fight. They get in the ring. And they just walk right up to the opponent and bash their face into his fists and just give up and fall down on the mat. That you immediately give up. This is a fight. And the fight for holiness incurs in one place, and that is in your heart, in your mind, not allowing your mind to dwell where it should, not cultivating sinful thoughts. Sinful thoughts are like drugs for your soul, that they, it feels good at the moment, but it has such disastrous consequences. I've, I've worked with so many drug addicts. I remember one particular young lady, 25 years old, and she was had been doing meth since she was like 15. And she looked, I'm not kidding, I have a picture of her in my counseling files, she looked 60 years old. She's 25 and her body is completely wrecked. She was totally gray, she was emaciated, her skin was wrinkled, she was in horrible shape. And I would ask her, why are you doing this? She said, it feels so good at the moment. Every time. Now, by God's grace, she got saved and came to faith and returned to looking 25 years old. And that was a great grace of God. But I remember I asked her, how are you having victory over this? She said, it's all in my mind. It's all in my mind. I have to think the right thoughts. She learned that lesson the hardest way possible. What are the thoughts that we fight? We fight thoughts of lust. We fight thoughts of greed, thoughts of anger, thoughts of selfishness, pride, irritability, lack of trust in the Lord. Here's one that men succumb to, fear. How do you fight these? How hard do you fight them? Let me tell you how hard you fight. Hebrews 12, 3 and 4 says, Consider him who endured from sinners such hostility against himself so that you may not grow weary or faint-hearted. This is speaking of Christ and how righteous he was even in the face of false accusations. And then here's the standard of fighting sin. In your struggle against sin, you have not yet resisted to the point of shedding your blood. You haven't resisted to that point. Have you ever told yourself to just shut up and stop thinking those sinful thoughts? 
Have you ever just looked in the mirror and, and rebuked yourself out loud even? Have you ever rebuked yourself as hard as you did your kids or, or those that are around you? Look, it's our duty as men to grab those thoughts, choke them out, strangle them to death, and throw them away like yesterday's trash. Choke them out with God's word and speak truth instead. Now here's how this might work. You're having sinful thoughts of lust and you, you start telling yourself, well, I, I have needs. I, I need this. This is what I need. You rebuke yourself and you say, I don't need anything. I have Christ. How on earth could I possibly need anything else? He's all sufficient. And you win that argument with your own heart. How about anger, that anger that flares up? I deserve to be angry. Ha! Not as much as God deserves to be angry with you. And you speak to yourself. How about greed? I need more. I need more. Well, Steve, you're co-owners with Christ of the whole stinking universe. How much more do you want? How about pride? I deserve this. Well, what you deserve and what you got are two different things and don't ever forget it. Irritability. I can't help it. I just get irritated. Yeah, you're right. You're probably more upset than Jesus was when he was being whipped, tortured, flogged, and beaten and hung on a cross. I'm sure that that your level of irritability is way more than he possibly could have experienced. How about lack of trust in the Lord and fear where I'm gripped by fear and all of you guys as providers for your family, you know that fear. You know that fear that you're the one that has to make that happen. Well, when you're gripped by that fear, then you say, all right, Lord, I'm grabbing a hold of you. I'm not letting go till my fear is gone. You be like Jacob in Genesis who wrestled with the Lord and he wrestled with him and he hung on and he said, I'm not letting go till you bless me. And that's how you get in prayer. That's how you wrestle down those thoughts. These are holy thoughts and holy thoughts lead to holy actions. They lead to holy words, holy deeds. Godly men think godly thoughts. I want to close with a verse that I put at the bottom of your handout. Romans 12, 2. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. If you will renew your mind, if you will transform your mind, you'll change your whole life. And you'll change the lives of many people around you as well. Well, these are David's last words. This is the king he should have been. And for us, it's be the man you should be now. And it all starts in your heart, in your head. Our Father, we are thankful for this time. I'd like to ask you, Lord, that uh, I I know we did ten principles, and certainly there's no way we're going to remember all of them. But if we default at least to remember that godly men think holy thoughts, thoughts that are set apart, thoughts that are pleasing to you. Lord, it is my deep prayer that every one of us, myself at the top of the list, would so cleanse our minds and our hearts that we would pray along with David, create in me a clean heart and renew a right spirit within me. That would be our prayer this morning, Lord. I pray for these guys that as they discuss these issues for a few moments, that they would be mindful that the thoughts we think are seen very clearly by you and certainly the outcome of them are very often seen by those around us might we be men who radically alter how we think that we might be pleasing to the Lord Jesus we pray these things in his name Amen